and welcome to Cubs PS Plus, a Northside Numbers game, a weekly podcast that dives headfirst into the analysis of hot topics driving Chicago Cubs baseball. I'm your host, Mike Waller, a lifelong Cub fan, full-time baseball stat nerd, and sometime youth baseball coach. Thank you for spending time with me today. I know there are a lot of choices out there. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram, both at Cubs PS Plus, a spin on the baseball metric OPS Plus. Please take 10 seconds and drop a rating or review on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever it is you find your podcasts. If you've done that, thank you so much. Maybe share an episode with a friend. Just a few seconds will help me get better and help others find the show. I'd love to know what you want to know about Cubs baseball. Welcome to episode 14. Every year I dread the end of baseball season. As a kid, it meant a long, dreary Iowa winter was coming. Now that I live in a warmer state, it just means no baseball. I'll thoroughly enjoy this World Series, but I'm ready for the season to be over. But not because the Cubs narrowly avoided a 90-loss season, but because I think this is going to be a really exciting offseason. When the World Series is over, things can begin in earnest. Qualifying offers will be issued, players will declare for free agency, and teams can begin signing players and making trades. The Cubs are rolling into the offseason with some glaring holes to fill but also with a lot of available cash and a deep top 10 farm system. Last week, we talked about Jed's favorite phrase, intelligent spending. This week, we'll put that to work and look at which free agents make sense for the Cubs. Will the Cubs rise to get Aaron Judge? Will they dig deep to get one of the elite shortstops? Will the Cubs look to Japan again? Let's dig in. Are you ready? I'm ready. Here. We. Go. It was a wild week last week. The Astros completed the sweep over the Yankees, serenaded by a lot of boos from the Yankee not-so-faithful. And the Phillies stayed hot, knocking the Padres out in five games. Former Cub Kyle Schwarber hit some moonshots, and Bryce Harper had the moment of the playoffs, launching the Fightins into the World Series with his huge eighth-inning blast as a loose Josh Hader watched helplessly from the Padre bullpen. After a very long four-day break with no baseball, the 2023 World Series will kick off tonight, with Aaron Nola squaring off against Justin Verlander. I lived in Philly for about six years back in the day. I moved away just before the new stadiums opened, so I'll be team fightings all the way. I need more Schwarber vibes, more Nick Castellanos, and more Bryce Harper. The Phillies are just stupid hot right now and mashing the ball all over the place. They'll be facing what has probably been the best team in baseball over the last six years. I'm not an Astros fan, but man, they are a really, really good baseball team that just keeps coming at you, and with the exception of the ageless Justin Verlander, have an amazing homegrown pitching staff. While I don't like them, I really respect what the Astros have done from a player development perspective. They've changed the game, and they've been reaping the rewards for a good half decade. The Astros are really what the Cubs are aspiring to be, though maybe the Cubs could and should carry more payroll. The name of the game right now is player development. I'm not going to dive deep into what the Astros are doing today, but there's an excellent book out there called The MVP Machine, written by Ben Lindbergh and Travis Sawchuk. They dive into all the fantastic details of baseball's talent development revolution led by the Astros, led by the hated Trevor Bauer, led by the sometimes controversial Kyle Bodie and his company, Driveline Baseball. Check it out. It's a great read and has a lot of really interesting detail on the direction player development systems have gone. Last week, we took a walk through the Cubs' journey from 2014 to where we find them today. In one of my earlier podcasts, I also talked about all the work the Cubs did this year to raise the floor of this team. The offseason now is the time to raise the ceiling. 
With the World Series finally kicking off, the offseason is almost here. This week, there was a ton of speculation about offseason moves since there was no baseball game action to discuss. Where's Aaron Judge going to go? How much will the big shortstops get? We're also hearing more and more about a couple very interesting Japanese pitchers, Kodai Senga and Shuntaro Fujinami. Both Senga, 29, and Fujinami, 28, are flamethrowing starters who can get up around triple digits at times. Senga will come to the States as a straight-up free agent, while Fujinami will go through the posting process, as a lot of Japanese players have, including Seiya Suzuki last year. With the offseason almost here, let's lay out some key offseason dates, take a look at what the Cubs need this offseason, and take a look at what the Cubs might spend. For timelines, players whose contracts have expired become free agents as soon as the World Series is over, which could be as early as Tuesday, November 1st, or as late as Saturday, November 5th, assuming the series does not get pushed later due to bad weather. Teams cannot begin signing players, however, until five days have passed, so look for signings to begin the week of November 7th. Teams will begin clearing out rosters when the World Series ends. All players on the restricted list or on the 60-day injured list need to be cleared and either put through waivers or added back to the 40-man roster. So we'll start seeing activity for sure in the next 7 to 10 days and then signings after that. Trades can begin happening when the World Series is over as well. At the highest level, there are some Cubs needs that stand out. Number one, this lineup simply isn't deep enough. They, the Cubs were 22nd in runs scored this year, and they were 21st last year. There are some things I like about what the Cubs accomplished in 2022, such as significantly lowering their team strikeout rate, but there just aren't enough threats in the lineup to produce enough offense. The second need, in addition to generally needing more offense, the Cubs need more pop from the left side. Outside of Ian Happ, who's a switch hitter, the Cub lineup, especially the bigger producers, are overwhelmingly right-handed. Third, the Cubs need to get more innings out of their starting pitchers this year. Injuries certainly played a role in the Cubs' struggles in this area in 2022, but I think this is going to put the Cubs in the market for one to two starting pitchers who have a track record of putting up quality innings. The Cubs have shown that they can develop a bullpen, so if starters can more consistently get through six innings and to the seventh more often, it's going to do wonders for keeping that bullpen fresh. Fourth, with the shift going away in 2023, Infield defense will be critical, especially in the effort to keep the starting pitchers in the game longer. Anything the Cubs can do to improve its defense could be hugely impactful. So those are the high points across the team. When you look at the Cubs position by position, the Cubs should feel pretty good about the corner outfielders with Happ and Suzuki. They're strong with one middle infield slot as Nico Horner is a top shelf defender at both shortstop and second base. After that, there are a lot more question marks. Jan Gomes is a good catcher when it comes to defense and handling pitchers, but the Cubs will still need to cover 50-plus games with the expected departure of Wilson Contreras. The corner infield positions were hit and miss at best in 2022. There are reasons for some optimism, but they'll likely need to make some additions here. Second base was a mess. Nick Madrigal couldn't stay healthy, David Bodie missed most of the year, and Zach McKinstry was only so-so after the Cubs acquired him in the Chris Martin trade. And don't even get me started on the Jonathan VR, Andrelton Simmons, and Ildemaro Vargas portion of 2022. The Cubs also have a need in center field, though there are a number of promising young outfielders that could be up sooner rather than later and potentially help plug in here. So we've established a few things at this point. 74 wins just isn't good enough, so the team needs to improve, which means deepening the lineup, getting more innings from the starting pitchers, and improving the team's defense. On the plus side, the Cubs have a lot of room within the competitive balance tax threshold. From here, I'll just call it the luxury tax threshold. A deep farm system, 
top 10 in MLB, according to a number of publications, and some have the Cubs in the top five. And a lot of positions where an upgrade over 2022 should frankly be pretty easy. Everyone is trying to read the tea leaves to figure out what the Cubs will do. I think, and I hope, that the Cubs will take a balanced approach to the offseason. They have prospect depth to make trades. Remember when the Cubs got four teenagers for you, Darvish? Maybe they can be on the other end of that kind of trade this offseason. They have cash to spend. They have a team that played much better baseball in the second half, and they have a team that already has several players on the roster with borderline all-star potential. But back to the Astros and the MVP machine for a minute. The Astros have done what the Cubs couldn't do post-2017. I talked about it last week. We saw Chris Bryant, Javi Baez, Jorge Soler, Kyle Schwarber, Wilson Contreras, Albert Amora, and Addison Russell all come up and contribute to the championship in 2016. Ian Happ came up after that group and has had success. But then that was it. There was no next wave. Because the Cubs were developing only position players, they had to trade Soler, Gleyber Torres, Dylan Cease, Eloy Jimenez, Jaime Candelario, and Isaac Paredes for pitching. That pitching served as a patch for a while, but because the Cubs system lacked quality depth, the franchise suffered. The Astros haven't had problems in this area. They just keep producing talent. They're scouting well, they're developing consistently throughout the organization, and they're having a lot of success. The Cubs look to be on this track, but they're still a year or so away from having volume at the higher levels of the minors to really be able to stock and sustain the Major League roster. So they're not yet at the point where there are multiple players who just look ready to plug in for next year. They're close. The Cubs have a couple outfielders who are close, but Brennan Davis, a consensus top 100 prospect in MLB, missed most of this past season after having back surgery, and now he's also missed time in the Arizona Fall League for an undisclosed injury that supposedly is not related to the back injury. And now the Cubs got news last night that Alexander Canario, who hit 37 home runs across three levels of the minors in 2022, Rolled his ankle badly last night in the Dominican Winter League game. Early reports say he has an ankle fracture that may need surgery, and he dislocated his glove shoulder in the fall. Early reports could be wrong, but he may not be ready for spring training, and 2023 could wind up being a lost season for him. First baseman Matt Mervis, who is quickly earning the name Mash Mervis, put up numbers even better than Canario and has been tearing up the Arizona Fall League. He will probably make a hard push to open the season in Chicago, but he's only put up these numbers for one season. So I assume the Cubs will go into the offseason with a plan to beef up first base in a way that gives the Cubs production, but not with a deal that would block Mervis. The Cubs have a number of other really interesting position players, especially center fielder Pete Crow Armstrong, known as PCA, who exploded this past season, hitting better than anyone expected in his first full season of professional ball after missing almost all of 2021 due to injury. PCA, though, and many of the other interesting position players were mostly in the lower minors this year. PCA was a sensation, but he hasn't seen a pitch at AA yet. I think most of these guys are going to need more time in the minors if the Cubs are trying to win in Wrigley. Remember, though, that once guys hit AA and start to have some success, they're within range for a call-up. On the pitching side, the Cubs do have a lot of young arms that are very close. We saw Hayden Wesneski late in the season, and he looked very good. There are other starters, Caleb Killian, Ben Brown, DJ Herz, Jordan Wicks, to name a few, who could potentially see time in Chicago in 2023. But none of those guys should be expected to pop right up to Chicago and throw a full season load at front half of the rotation quality. Look at Justin Steele and Keegan Thompson over the past two seasons. They had success, but they both had a lot of learning curve, and they both hit some fatigue late in the seasons they hit inning counts they'd never thrown before. 
The Cubs will likely try to add one to two starters to a group that threw really well in the second half. At this point, I think only Marcus Stroman and Justin Steele are absolute locks to be in the rotation. But if healthy, Kyle Hendricks would join them, and then some combo of Wesneski, Javier Assad, Adrian Sampson, Caleb Killian, and others will likely battle for innings. Drew Smiley could get in the mix, too, if the Cubs do sign him and bring him back next year. Trades are a little harder to project because I don't know which players are being shopped or which teams are coming to the Cubs looking for a prospect injection. So the rest of this podcast will focus primarily on what the Cubs free agent activity could look like. Although I will make my weekly plug that the Cubs should absolutely do what it takes to trade for Shohei Otani. Shohei Otani. Shohei Otani. I said it. Who very clearly is ready to move on from the Angels. Go get that ace starter who can also be your big lefty power bat and just hit all the weaknesses in one shot. There, I got that off my chest. But back to free agency. The Cubs look to have about $110 million to spend this offseason if they stay under the luxury tax threshold. Some of that money will go to arbitration raises for a few guys, as discussed last week, and to get the lower-end roster depth to fill out a complete roster. The Cubs, however, should definitely have $70 to $80 million to spend as new money on net new free agent pickups. Last year, the Cubs spent... $40 $40 million plus on Marcus Stroman and Seiya Suzuki as the big additions. 70 to $80 million is a good chunk to go pick up quality talent, but they won't be able to just go out and, and pick off a buffet and grab everybody. So let's go back over what the Cubs need. They need one to two starting pitchers, preferably at least one that can be considered a front half of the rotation guy. They need a lefty power bat. They need corner infield help. They need two to three general offensive upgrades. They might need a catcher, at least a backup catcher, a center fielder, a couple veteran relievers. Within those positions, the Cubs want to get more innings out of the rotation, improve their defense, particularly their infield defense, and add speed and overall athleticism, particularly as the larger bases next season should increase stolen base activity, where the Cubs were already fourth best in baseball this season. Ideally, they'll add more power and more on base percentage. Defense is likely worth digging into. In 2016, the Cubs were historically good defensively and led all of baseball in defensive runs saved. This year, the Cubs were just 21st in baseball. Given the Cubs' rotation that features multiple pitch-to-contact guys, improving that defense will be really important. Bleacher Report came out this week with their projections for what the top 15 expected free agents will make this offseason. Up front, we'll hit a couple assumptions. Xander Bogarts, Carlos Correa, Jacob deGrom, Justin Verlander, and Carlos Rodon are all expected to opt out of their contracts, but Nolan Arenado is not. When you look at the available free agents, you want to factor in what the Cubs need and also look at the deepest positions. There will be a lot of competition for each player, but with four very high-end shortstops, the Cubs almost have to hit that pool of players, even though Nico Horner played well at shortstops this year. The Cubs don't have to have perfect fits everywhere. They've done a very good job over the years at maintaining positional flexibility, and they have several guys who can move around. If you sign a shortstop, maybe that guy moves to third base. If not, then Nico Horner has already demonstrated that he can play elite second base. So by position, Bleacher Report's top 15 break out this way. Starting pitchers, you have Jacob deGrom, Carlos Rodon, Justin Verlander, Chris Bassett, and Clayton Kershaw. Of those players, only Verlander is expected to not be issued a qualifying offer, which is a baseball procedural step where their team can offer a one-year deal at the rate of the average salary from among baseball's 125 highest-paid players. This year, the qualifying offer will be $19.7 million. 
If the Cubs sign a player tied to a qualifying offer, they will lose a draft pick, which will be awarded to that player's former team. For example, the Cubs are expected to make a qualifying offer to Wilson Contreras, so the Cubs should also pick up a compensation pick when he signs somewhere else. For closers, there's only one. Edwin Diaz is the big closer on the market, coming from the Mets. There are four shortstops, as mentioned earlier. Carlos Correa, Trey Turner, Xander Bogarts, and Dansby Swanson. Only Correa wouldn't come with a qualifying offer tie. At first base, we have Josh Bell and Jose Abreu, neither of which would have a qualifying offer attached. And at catcher, the only big free agent is expected to be Wilson Contreras. So that's it for the infield. There are no second baseman or third baseman in the top 15 this year, again on the assumption that Nolan Arenado stays with the St. Louis Cardinals. In the outfield, there are two, Aaron Judge and Brandon Nimmo, both of whom are expected to get a qualifying offer. So this is where things can start getting really interesting and where the Cubs' strategy will start to impact who they go after. Right off the top, it doesn't seem like there have been any serious talks about extending Wilson Contreras, so consider him gone. It's sad to see him go, but I think the writing is on the wall at this point, unless he accepts the qualifying offer and plays one year for $19.7 million, which is not expected. After that, I don't see the Cubs spending on a big closer like Diaz, who Bleacher Report projects to sign for five years and $100 million. The Cubs already have some closer options in-house, and they've had really good success building out the back end of a bullpen by finding guys with solid track records that they think they can improve by adding a pitch, tweaking mechanics, or changing their pitch mix. So that leaves shortstop, outfield, and first base, plus the starting pitchers, as areas for potential growth. The biggest thing the Cubs need is an offensive boost, and the highest concentration of big bats is at shortstop. Look for the Cubs to be aggressive here, and either put the guy they signed at third base with Nico at short, or put the new signee at shortstop while Horner slides back to second base. It doesn't really matter. I think you get the talent, you bring him in, and then figure out where they play later. Bleacher Report has, as most experts do, Turner and Correa at the top of the shortstop market, with Bogarts maybe a half step behind and Dansby Swanson a step behind Bogarts. Correa is the youngest, he'll be 28 next season, and he will not come attached to a qualifying offer. Turner has a better glove, is faster, and isn't far off with the bat. Bleacher Report projects Turner to get eight years, $272 million, which is a $34 million per year average annual value, or AAV, and for Correa to get nine years, $270 million, which is $30 million AAV. Bogarts comes in at eight years, 240 for $30 million AAV, and Swanson at six years, $140 million, which is $23.3 million per year. Eight to nine years is a long time with some back-end risk, as these guys will be signed into their late 30s. But if you want a free agent of this caliber, that's the space you have to play in. Just as the Cubs maybe didn't get full value on a dollar-to-war basis with, say, John Lester, it took those extra years to get the years you really, really want at the front end of that deal. Sometimes you can convince a player to sign a shorter deal if you're going to give more money per year, so a higher annual average annual value. With this shortstop class, though, that seems unlikely. Correa would maybe be the best candidate for it since he's the youngest, but he just did that last year. So I would expect all four of these shortstops to get deals of probably at least six years. Let's go to the outfielders next. Fresh off his 62 home run season. Yes, 62 home runs. That's crazy. Aaron Judge is going to be a hot commodity. Expect the Yankees, Dodgers, Giants, and maybe the Cubs to all be involved in negotiations. Bleacher Report projects Judge to get an eight-year, $300 million contract, pushing record pay levels with a $37.5 million AAV. 
the Cubs or Dodgers may try to get him on a shorter deal, say four to five year deal with an opt out after two to three seasons. If Judge was open to that path, the AAV probably pushes forty two to forty five million dollars per year. We'll talk more about Nimmo in a minute. I think the Cubs will go after one top level bat for sure, regardless of other moves they may make this offseason. I would expect the Cubs to go hard after the top three shortstops and Aaron Judge. I think it's more likely that they wind up with a shortstop than Judge, but I think they'll go hard after those four guys. After that, it's less obvious who they will go after because other non-free agent moves this offseason will determine where it makes sense to spend. This takes us back to Brandon Nimmo. Nimmo is an excellent center fielder with a solid glove and a strong bat. He posted almost nine wins above replacement over the past two seasons, and four of his last five seasons have ended with a WRC plus north of 130, his worst being a 115 in 2019. He's going to get a lot of attention for sure, but with the Cubs, it will depend on their strategy with the outfield over the next three to four years. Nimmo is projected to sign for $20 million per season over five years. That's actually a pretty reasonable price and duration for an outfielder of his caliber who will turn 30 next season. However, the Cubs have three top 100 outfield prospects and five outfielders in their top 10, two of whom could absolutely be eyeing time in Chicago next year were it not for injury concerns, Davis and Canario. The Cubs have Seiya Suzuki signed for five more seasons and are rumored to be talking contract extension with Ian Happ. If they sign Happ for three to five more years after 2023 and they sign Nimmo, then the Chicago outfield is effectively full for the next three to four years, barring trades. Hap, Nimmo, and Suzuki would be a good outfield, and at $20 million per year, Nimmo could absolutely fit alongside a Turner, Correa, Bogart signing. But I'm not sure the Cubs will block the outfield prospects like that. It may mean that a Hap extension eliminates Nimmo, or that a Nimmo signing keeps the Cubs from extending Hap this offseason. Now, this math might change some given the injury to Canario and the questions with Davis, but a four- to five-year deal for Nimmo and a Hap extension still seem unlikely together, given the other outfielders in the Cubs system, maybe most notably PCA. So at this point, I think the Cubs will make a move on one big bat and either push for Nimmo or extend Hap. I think extending Hap is the more likely answer and probably the more cheaper move overall. So let's say they get someone like Turner or Correa for 30 to $35 million per year AAV and lock in Hap at, say, $17 million a year. The Cubs are now at 40 to $45 million in net new money for next year of the likely 70 to $80 million they have to spend. I'm not counting Hap's full salary as net new because he's expected to get north of $10 million if the Cubs don't extend him but instead go through arbitration. With 25 to $30 million for next year left to go, the Cubs will still be looking for a corner infielder and a starting pitcher. With Nolan Arenado expected to stay in St. Louis, there aren't a lot of great options at third base on the open market this year. So look for the Cubs to either shift their new shortstop over to third base, leaving Horner at short, or let this be covered by a combination of Christopher Morrell, Patrick Wisdom, Zach McKinstry, or some other cheap addition or trade acquisition over the offseason. So let's go ahead and move to first base. Mash Mervis is the hot name right now among Cubs fans. He has massive lefty power and had an amazing 2022, shooting up through three levels and hitting more than 40 home runs when you count all of his minor league time plus the Arizona Fall League. He looks like a guy pushing hard for a roster spot in the spring, but the Cubs may also want to pump the brakes a little bit to avoid putting the pressure all on his shoulders to produce at that position. There are a couple interesting first basemen out there. Let's look at Josh Bell first. He's definitely the best first baseman on the market. 
He's 30, and he's been a two-plus war player for several seasons. The shortened 2020 COVID year is the only year of his career where he didn't post an above-average WRC+, and his last three full seasons have been 135, 119, and 123. The guy can hit. He's expected to get a deal for four years, $64 million. The money on Bell isn't bad at all. That's basically a longer version of the Anthony Rizzo contract. But for the Cubs, the years might be a deal-breaker. At four years, he does start blocking Mash Mervis. The next guy on the list is Southsider Jose Abreu. He'll be 36 next year, so he's considerably older, but all he's done his whole career is hit. He has a career 860 OPS and a career 133 WRC+. He's not fading into old age either. He posted a 125 WRC+, in 2021, and a 137 in 2022. His power fell off a little this year, for sure. 15 homers, the lowest of his career. But he also posted a career-best 16.7% strikeout rate. His hit tool would play really well in this Cubs lineup. He's expected to sign for two years, $34 million, so really not much difference in AAV from Bell. But the shorter time frame would allow him to help the Cubs now and also not alter Mash's development. If Mash continues to push, the two could platoon, or they could also rotate through the DH slot. Abreu isn't maybe the most exciting free agent out there, but I do think he makes a lot of sense. Again, back to spending intelligently. I'll mention Rizzo here. There's a chance he opts out of his contract in New York, and the Cubs may or may not be in play for his services, but I think the ship has sailed with Rizzo. Both he and the Cubs made choices over the last two years, and a deal never got done. I think he left with some hard feelings, but I'm also not sure he was really treated unfairly by the Cubs. Either way, I don't think he comes home again. Unlike Abreu, Rizzo would come home as the crowd favorite, and he's a lefty, so it makes it that much harder for he and Mervis to blend it all with the position. I wish Rizzo had never left, but I really don't see a path to him coming home again. Sometimes that's just how things work out. If the Cubs were to make a push for Abreu, they probably still have 15 to 20 million in new spending to go after pitching help. Note, I think they will pick up roster depth and bullpen arms via free agency, but those will be lower end deals that fit more in with the general roster construction money I mentioned earlier. Money that sits sort of separate and apart from the 70 to 80 million I'm anticipating for big additions. When you look at the starting pitchers, there are a couple tiers there as well. Jacob deGrom and Justin Verlander are both projected to make close to $45 million per year AAV, deGrom for three years and Verlander for two. deGrom is the best pitcher on the planet when he's healthy, but can anyone count on his health? At $45 million per year, that's a huge gamble. Verlander will be 40, but he seems to be almost ageless. I think the Cubs skip out on that level of starter and instead look to see what they can get in the 15 to $25 million per year range. Carlos Rodon tops that list, expected to get five years, $120 million, coming off a great season in San Francisco. Chris Bassett sits next at three years, $60 million, then Kershaw one year and $20 million. But I think if Kershaw comes back, it'll almost certainly be to close out his career as a Dodger. I could see the Cubs going after Rodon, but he does have injury history of his own, so five years comes with clear risk. This is where I think the Japanese pitchers become very interesting. Kadai Sanga has been one of the best pitchers in Japan for years and will come over as just a free agent with no posting fee attached. Some estimates I've seen have him on the market for a five-year, $75 million contract. That's $15 million AAV. I'm not sure what Shuntaro Fujinami will demand, but he will have a posting fee tied to him. The Cubs paid almost $15 million in posting money for Seiya Suzuki last year. Essentially, his team in Japan will post him, and teams have a 30-day window to negotiate. 
His Japanese team gets 20% of his first $25 million, 17.5% of his next $25 million, and 15% of any money above that. Senga does not have a posting fee because he has an opt-out clause in his contract that he's going to execute. So he is truly a free agent and not tied to any team in Japan. The Cubs have been rumored to be very interested in Senga for a couple of months now, so he seems like a very strong possibility for the rotation. In 11 seasons in Japan, he's posted a 242 ERA, a 1.096 whip, strikes out 10 per nine innings, and strikes out three hitters to every walk. He probably does not walk into the MLB as a true staff ace, but he certainly falls into that solid number two, high-end number three starter category. So let's walk through what I think is most likely for the Cubs offseason. Big bat? Check. I think they get either Turner or Correa at $35-ish million per year. Solidify an outfield spot? I think they probably lock down Ian Happ with an extension at maybe a 7 to $8 million in net new money above the 10 he was expected to get this year. At the corner infield spot, I think they're going to get Jose Abreu at $17 million or so AAV for a couple years as a bridge to Mervis. Starting pitcher? Some fans may be disappointed, but I think the Cubs are going to be aggressive and likely wind up with Kaude Sanga for $15 million or so per year. That's roughly $75 million in new money that still leaves Cushion to make some smaller additions, trades, etc., and still stay under the luxury tax. The line this year will be $233 million, and I, think, I would be very surprised if the Cubs don't push north of 210 I don't think they'll go over the $233 million, but I think they'll get up in the ballpark. So what would the new lineup and rotation look like with the above additions? Well, let's assume the new shortstop plays shortstop and Nico moves to second. The Cubs would then have either Turner or Correa at short, Happ and left, Suzuki and right, Horner at second base, Abreu at first base, all set in the lineup. There are still some holes and some opportunities for guys like Christopher Morrell, Nick Madrigal, Nelson Velazquez, and Patrick Wisdom, but that's already a better, deeper lineup than the Cubs have seen in quite a while. On the pitching side, if the Cubs landed Senga, they'd have a rotation of Stroman, Senga, Steele, and then Hendricks, Wesneski, Assad, Sampson, Killian, and Thompson all fighting it out for the last two spots. And they may come to terms with Drew Smiley as well. If the Cubs can go into the season with Drew Smiley and Kyle Hendricks in the four or five slots with young arms waiting, that's a really good place to be. There are some other really intriguing possibilities. If the Phillies go in hard for Trey Turner, as some have been reporting, it may mean not picking up Gene Segura's option. Similarly, the Dodgers seem likely to let former MVP Cody Bellinger hit free agency. Bellinger could be a really good high-risk, high-reward gamble for the Cubs with maybe an option for one year with maybe an option for a second. Bellinger has really struggled the last few years, but he's won an MVP, and he could be a sneaky addition to an outfield who can also play first base with big upside that wouldn't block any of the young players. Segura is a quality player who could be a fallback option at second base if the Cubs miss on the big shortstops. It's going to be a really interesting November. Personally, I hope the Cubs get out quick and get a signing in the books early, as Cubs fans will start getting anxious with a run of seeming silence as players start coming off the board. Remember, too, that trades are also a likelihood. Come on, Cubs, make that splash for Otani. I expect the Cubs to be busy, and I expect them to be significantly better heading into next season. Who's on your wish list? Let me know on Twitter or Instagram, at CubsPSPlus. I want to thank you for spending time with me today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Please take 10 seconds and drop a rating and a review on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. 
If you've already done that, thank you so much. Maybe share an episode with a friend. Just a few seconds will help me get better and help others find the show. As always, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CubsPSPlus. This is Mike Waller, host of the Cubs PS Plus podcast. Every day with Cubs baseball or talking about Cubs baseball is a great day. Go Cubs!